30 scriptures in 30 days? Day 14 begins right now. Good Sunday afternoon to everyone, and welcome to the Theology Central Podcast. It is Sunday, June the 26th, 2022. It is currently 4.09 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, we've made it. We've we've made it. We've made it to day 14, and our 30 scriptures and 30 days, do we call it, it's, it's, is it a mini series? I don't think we can really call that a mini series, but in our in our series that we are doing 30 scriptures in 30 days, we've arrived at day 14. And well, I hope you are excited. I hope you've been just sitting there waiting and just just refreshing on your phone. Just keep pulling down and refreshing. Wait, when is that next podcast episode going to drop? Wait, when is the when is the live broadcast going to begin? All I care about is hearing day 14. Come on. It's it's almost 4 p.m. Time's running out. I need to hear that episode. Okay, probably nobody was doing that, but even if you're not that excited about it, hopefully it will prove to be somewhat beneficial. Hopefully, maybe the benefit from this will outweigh your lack of excitement about it. Maybe. Let's hope so. But are you ready? All right, let's begin. Quick reminder. This all started many, many, many years ago when Charles Stanley wrote a book called 30 Life Principles. That book became a Bible called the Life Principles Bible. That book became a study guide called the 30 Life Principles Study Guide. It became all kinds of different things. I don't know how many copies were sold. Uh, Copies are still being uh, sold. It's still being promoted in many publications. Uh, It was used by, obviously, different churches, Sunday schools, small groups. And I came across the book and was like, oh, this looks interesting. 30 life principles given by someone who's been preaching for like 50 years. Even if I don't agree with his theology, I want to see these life principles that I guess that he lives by, that he preaches, and then maybe I can learn something from them. So I got the book, I got it, I got my Bible, I got my notebook, and I was like, okay, here we go. Let's dig in. And I'm like, wait. Okay, these principles, some of them sound good. Some of these principles are a little questionable. That wasn't too much of a surprise. 
because I don't agree with all of Charles Stanley's uh, theology. So I knew I wouldn't agree with all of the principles, but some of them sounded really good. Some of them were questionable, but I'm like, okay, okay. Even if I may not agree with all 30, if I, if I get 10 or 15, that would still be, that'd still be valuable. But then this is what kind of surprised me, confused me. And, and to this day just bothers me so much about the book. In the book, he gives you the principle and he gives you the scripture from which that principle supposedly comes from and which it supposedly, uh, where he found that principle. But every single time when I look at the scripture that's given in the book, 30 Life Principles, I can't find the principle in that supposed scripture. And scripture, in many cases, I find different principles from those scriptures. So this is what it feels like to me. Again, I cannot be dogmatic, but it feels like to me, he came up with 30 Life Principles and then simply looked for scriptures in which to impose the principles on. That is not how you do Bible study. That is wrong. That's not how you do anything. What we're supposed to do is study the scripture and then see what principles arise from the accurate study of the text. So what we have done is what we are in this series, 30 scriptures in 30 days, we're taking the principles. I'm giving you, here's the principle for this day, all right? What do you think about it? All right, let's set it aside. Now let's go to the scripture and then we work on the scripture in real time. I don't I don't plan for this or prepare beforehand because what I want this what what I want to happen is while I'm sitting here in real time, sometimes stumbling over my words or, or trying to write it in a notebook trying to figure it out is that you're sitting there going, "Wait, well what would I do with that scripture?" What what principle do I see in that scripture because I want you actually participating, not just passively listening, all right? So that's that's a quick summary of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to go to my uh, Kindle app on my iPad, open up the Kindle app, and I'm going to go here to life principle number 14. Life principle number 14 for this Sunday, June the 26th, 2022. It's now 4.14 p.m., Sunday afternoon. Are, are you are you there? I know most people, you're probably sleeping or taking a nap and not paying any attention, but whenever you do hear this, I hope you're ready whatever time it may be whenever you listen. Here we go. Life principle number 14, as recorded in the book, 30 Life Principles by Charles Stanley, and is also found in the Life Principles Bible. Here we go. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Now, the one thing I, I don't want, again, I don't want to spend too much time taking apart these principles because we've talked about them already in, in a, a kind of another mini series that we did on the 30 life principles. But one thing that I've noticed over and over in these uh, principles is they're much more law driven than gospel driven. Because over and over, it seems like Okay, God may do this if you do this. It's a lot of what, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, a lot of law language based on what you need to do and what you should do instead of instead of based on this is what God does for us. In other words, instead of being more gospel-driven and gospel-driven is what God has done for us, law-driven is what we must do for God. And we can get in a whole distinction between law and gospel that I think is obviously a super important theological discussion that cannot be talked about enough. But once again, you see a little bit of that here. God acts. Okay, God will act. And he will act on the behalf of someone. 
Who is God going to act on the behalf of? For those who wait for him. God is only going to act, it seems to imply, God is only going to act for those who wait on him. Now, I want you to just think about that. Is that is that always accurate? Because I think God acted on the behalf of Abraham and Sarai, or Abram and Sarai, even when they did not necessarily wait, right? Did they, did they wait? Because if I remember correctly, oh, well, we're never going to get this child that God promised. Oh, I know what we'll do. Here, here's Hagar. Let's use, let's use basically our slave. Well, well, they, they, they didn't wait on God. Did he still act on their behalf? Well, God showed up and acted on their behalf in a number of situations, did he not? Did he stop acting on their behalf? Did he just abandon them? Hey, you didn't wait on me, so that's it. I'm, I'm not going to help you out. Is that, is that the way it works? Because I see time and time again people, even in the Old Testament, who sin, who fell God. God, in many cases, still demonstrates his, well, compassion, his mercy, his grace. So how do we understand this principle? Well, let's set the principle aside. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him, and we're going to focus on the scripture that is used. Now, another thing that we've noticed so far, this is day 14, scripture number 14, as I think every single one of them have been taken from the Old Testament. Uh, a second thing that's that's kind of been weird to me is that in some of these principles, you're like, oh, I know what scripture I would use for that. I know what, and it's not the scripture you would think it would be. In many cases, it's it's an Old Testament passage that may not even be that well known. And you're like, what? how did he come up? How did he get to that scripture? This is one of those things I wish I could sit down and go, explain to me how you came up with the scriptures for your 30 life principles, because some of them don't make any sense. So we're back in the Old Testament again. Here we go. I'm going to grab, I'm going to grab a number of Bibles here. I'm going to grab this one, right? Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. Remember, I don't know what's getting ready to happen. I'm assuming you don't know what's getting ready to happen. Isaiah chapter 64. Well, I, I, I think we can take a, an, a, an educated guess, right? God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So clearly in Isaiah, we're going to read some passage about waiting on God. Isaiah 64, 4. For since the beginning of the world, Men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for them that waiteth for him. Read that one more time. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath, hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. I'm going to read it from a different translation. That's Isaiah 64, 4. Again, it's just, if, if you saw the Life Principles book, you would just see, it just has the principle and right underneath that, it just, boom, here's the scripture. In many cases, there's, there's really no context provided immediately. Now, they do have their little study. Obviously, I have the study guide as well, the little study or in the book, kind of an explanation. But even sometimes you're just like, I don't know. I don't know. But okay, let's go to Isaiah 64.4. I'm going to use it in this Bible. All right, I know you're already there at Isaiah 64. But I've got to get there in this Bible. 
Isaiah 64, verse 4. Now, this is how it reads in this translation, Isaiah 64, 4. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of those who waits for him. Now, that's kind of interesting. King James has it, for, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath I seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. And the other one says, maybe, maybe I'm just thinking it's drastically different. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of those who waits for him. All right, so there, in fact, that comes, that sounds very much like the principle. Acts on behalf of those who waits for him. All right, so that's God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That comes directly from the scripture. Now, here's the thing. And remember, this is being given as a life principle, a life principle for you, that, that this is just not, hey, this is, the, the, the historical context is not being spoken of here, who this is referencing to, it's immediately said, this is how it works for you. I'm just going to read, this is, this is one time I'm going to, I'm going to violate a a little of our rules here. I just, I just want to read, I'm going to read a little bit of what they have to say here. I'm going to read a little bit of what they have to say. They start this way. Waiting is not fun. Each day you wake up hoping for some tidbit of good news, but it doesn't, Uh, It doesn't come or you receive a negative report and you see longer delays ahead. It can be very frustrating. No wonder Proverbs 13, 12 tells us hope deferred makes the heart sick. The longer you wait, you, you, the longer you wait to see your desire fulfilled, the more discouraged your heart grows. That is, of course, unless your hope and trust are centered exclusively on Christ. One of the most difficult lessons that you will learn is to wait on God. However, it is crucial that you understand how truly important waiting on him is. Life principle number 14 explains God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. If you want God's very best for your life, you must trust him to provide it in his time. His knowledge of you and your situation are absolutely perfect, and so is his timing. He's going to make sure that you're completely prepared for the blessings that he has for you. Therefore, make sure to keep your eyes on him. All right, some, some general concepts there about waiting, all right? I, I'm not, I don't have a major issue. I, again, my concern is that the principle is just like handed to you, hey, that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. So if you wait, God's going to act. And I just want to make sure that we, we can see clearly there are times God may act when we fail to wait. I, I think, I mean, do, do we throw that out at all? I don't know. They go on to say this because they're going to provide context here. So I thought it would be at least fun to see what they have to say. Isaiah ministered to Judah from 740 BC to 681 BC. And he prophesied about the Babylonian captivity, which would begin a century later in 597 BC. The Babylonians would also destroy the temple in Jerusalem um, in 586 BC. And Isaiah 63, 7 to 64, 12, the prophet thanks God 
for his mercy and delivering, now they say the church from the Babylonian captivity. I have no idea why they would say the church, uh, because to me, that just adds confusion. He, he doesn't deliver the church. He delivered Judah from Babylonian captivity, okay? And he said, well, Judah is kind of was a church, but it was a nation. Okay, yeah, so I, I'm not a fan of doing that. We can get into the whole discussion. So he does provide some context here. And so he places that Isaiah 64.4 falls into a section where he, that the prophet is thanking God for his mercy in delivering the church from the Babylonian captivity. So let's go back to verse 1 and see if we can get some kind of context here. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence, just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations will tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works, when you did awesome works that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Now, let's just think this through. If Isaiah ministered to Judah, from 740 B.C. to 681 B.C. And he prophesied about the Babylonian captivity, which would begin a century later in 597 B.C., and that the Babylonians would destroy the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And then Isaiah 63, 7 and 64, 12, the prophet thanks God for his mercy in delivering the, the well, they say the church, we'll say Judah from Babylonian captivity, I think that starts providing us kind of a historical context, right? The historical context would be you have people who are in Babylonian captivity and they will have to wait in order to see God act on their behalf in delivering them from the Babylonian captivity. Now, that's a very specific historical situation and a very specific historical setting. So many times there are passages that are specific about, hey, what God is going to do for people who are coming out of Babylonian captivity that Christians and the church has run and grabbed, ripped out of that context and says, no, that applies to me. That applies to my situation. You probably know of a, of a pretty famous one do you know of a famous one where this happens? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. That has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with whoever graduated from high school this year or from college, has nothing to do with any of that. The verse prior to, Jeremiah 29.10, for thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work, my good word towards you and causing you to return this place. God is going to act on their behalf. They will have to wait 70 years, 70 years they will be in captivity, but God, at the conclusion of that 70 years, he will visit you and perform my good word towards you. He will act on their behalf and causing you to return from this place. 
Why? For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, um, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Has nothing to do with you or with me or my situation. Now, what does it demonstrate? Demonstrates one, God keeps his promises. Number two, it demonstrates God has the power to keep those promises, no matter what the opposition may be. Now, the fact that God keeps his word, keeps his promises, and has the power to act, that is applicable to us because God still keeps his word. He still has the power to act. And, and so we, we, can, we can gain something from that. But that specific promise in Jeremiah cannot be applied. Well, in this particular situation in Isaiah 64, this, is this not possibly telling the people in captivity that is it not applicable to the people in Babylonian captivity that God acts on those who wait? Let, let's go back to Isaiah 64. All right, I'm going to start in verse 1 again. 64.1, oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. I'm assuming there was some desire and crying out that God would come down and take care of the situation, but they were going to have to wait. Um, verse 2, as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil. Make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath they thy, the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoice, rejoiceth and, and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee and thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, and, the, and those is continuance, and we shall be saved. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteous are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away." And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed and has consumed us because of our iniquities. Clearly, this is a reference to Judah. It's a reference to Israel. It's a reference. It's a reference to a specific historical situation. And again, we have another Christian book that just jumps into the Old Testament, grabs a verse, boom! Hey, hey, look, guys. God will act on your behalf if you wait for him. Wait, 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 wait. This, this is God promising to act on the behalf of people in a very specific historical situation. I'm going to do something really quick. I'm going to do something. Because I have this commentary already ready to go. Let's see here. Because I used it. I was going to use it this morning. Oh, well, actually, this they don't even address Isaiah. They, they just skipped Isaiah 64. They're like, ah, oh, we don't care about Isaiah 64. We don't even care. Let me try this. That is bizarre. Um, they just skipped the whole chapter. I'm going to go Isaiah 64. I'm going to go verse 1. Okay, I'm going to go to BibleHub.com. Isaiah 64.
Okay, um, this is interesting. The division of chapters hinders the English reader from seeing what uh, that this is really a continuation of the prayer of Isaiah 63, 15 through 19. The prophet asked that Jehovah may not only look down from heaven, but may rend it, as it were, the dark clouds that hide the light of his countenance from his people and, and, and that the mountains might tremble at his presence. So, First, once again, the study guide would not even give us that context. It just rips it out of out of its context. It's a continuation of a prayer. All right, um, I'm going to continue reading another commentary. Israel's prayer, Israel's prayer continued and concluded, not content with praying God to uh, to look upon them one more once more with favor. Israel now asks for a theophany or a manifestation of the divine presence, such as they have experienced in the times of old, such as shall suffice to strike terror in the hearts of their enemies. With profound humility and confession, their manifold and grievous iniquities, they beseech God once more as their father and maker to have pity upon them, reminding him of the desolate condition of Judah and Jerusalem and urging him to no longer refrain himself. All right. So this is this is for it seems for Judah and Jerusalem. Um, for Judah, you know, seventy years, and then well, we, well, and we, uh, we could get into we could get into. I mean, clearly, we could get into all the discussion here. All right. Um, let's see here, I'm looking. See if there's any more. All right. Hang on. I'm looking at something. I'm looking at a couple of commentaries here to see if they provide us any more information. Let's see here. All right. So, yeah, um, some of the other commentaries mentioned both Judah. I guess if you mentioned Judah and Jerusalem, that would make sense because uh, divided kingdom, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. So that would make sense. I thought they were trying to... I thought they were trying to mix it to uh, both the north and southern kingdom, but uh, the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. So when they say Judah and Jerusalem, that would make perfect sense in that commentary. All right, I'm looking down to see what others have to say. Um, yeah, all of them seeming that this is a prayer that started in the previous chapter and that they, they're calling God to, to step in and do something, to, to, to fix their situation. And it seems to be the promises that God will act on those who wait for him. And I see here, um, yeah, um, I'm, I, I, everything seems to be pretty straightforward. Everything seems to be pretty straightforward here. So what, what do we do with this? See, once again, the, oh, this drives me, this drives me so crazy. Once again, he, 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 deri- he supposedly, he already had the promise. He, or the, I should say the principle. He already had the principle. And the principle is, hey, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And then he tried to find some, it almost felt like he tries to find a verse somewhere and said, oh, right there, right there. It talks about waiting on God. And then he turned that principle basically into a promise. And the promise is, hey, if you'll wait, if you'll wait on God, then he's going to act. If you'll wait, he'll he'll act. Because look, look what he did here with Judah. Hey, I mean, they got delivered from Babylonian captivity, right? But that's, that was a specific promise for a specific people. And that captivity Captivity had a specific purpose. It was all planned, ordained by God. It was clearly prophesied. So you, I don't know how you reach into the midst of that, rip something out of context and say, to anyone reading this, 
if you'll just wait, just wait, God is going to act on your behalf. Just wait. Now, I think there's lots of verses about waiting that we could look into, and we could possibly develop a theology of waiting, right? What is the theology? What is the biblical understanding of waiting? What is it? Is there a principle to it? How do we understand it? I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the 30 Life Principle Study Guide because I'm just curious this, right? Um, it's interesting that if you if you go through this, they 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 they, ask, they basically tell you to do something and ask some questions. They tell you to do some things and ask some questions, which is good because it does at least give you the context. But they say read Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. How does Isaiah describe God? Okay. How did the people respond to God's kindness? What why does God discipline his people? Then they tell you go to Hebrews. Well, clearly uh, Judah is being disciplined. They're being disciplined for their sin and their ungodliness. That's why they're in Babylonian captivity. What did uh, did the people do after God disciplined them? Then it says, read Isaiah 63, 15 through 19. How did the people of Judah feel as they were held captive in Babylon? Why have you felt this way? Now, at least they're, they're putting it back into the idea that there are people here in Babylonian captivity. So I'm glad the study guide at least acknowledges the context. I'm going to see, but but clearly they're going to rip things from the context and just, I think, make this a, a almost like a dogmatic promise. Um, then it says here, um, what did Isaiah ask God to do? What other hope was there for the people? So in Isaiah 64, we got to rend the heavens, to, to do all of these mighty works, all right? And then it says this. It is true that God was preparing his judgment for the kingdom of Judah, but it was also arranging the deliverance of the people who, was, who remained obedient to him. Their only hope was to wait on God to rescue them from their captors. Thankfully, it was a sure hope, and God was faithful to bring them back to Jerusalem when the time was right, and their heart had turned back to him. As God promised in Isaiah 49, 23, you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Okay, they've got it. At least they add some some kind of context. Then they say this, um, what are you waiting for? Do you ever feel that your situation is hidden from the Lord? So all of a sudden now they're going to, what are you waiting for? See, okay, we, they gave us a little bit of a context, but now let's leave that context. This sometimes is so deceptive in preaching. The preacher will admit the historical context, will acknowledge it, may even do a little work on it, but then quickly detour. Like, okay, hey, we're looking, boom, let's forget that now. It's about you. It's about you. So what are you waiting for? What do you, well, let me, let me make it very clear. If I'm waiting for something God has clearly promised, then God will clearly deliver it, right? If I'm, if I'm waiting for what God has promised, then he will deliver it. That's what we read in Isaiah. That's what we understand in Isaiah. He promised to deliver them from captivity. That's a promise. They were going to have to wait for it. And if you wait for what God, what God has literally promised, directly promised to you. It's an actual promise to you. He will deliver it. But you can't just say, I'm waiting, I'm waiting on God for this. Well, did God promise that to you? Well, if I wait, 
then he'll deliver, then he'll, he'll act on my behalf. That's where this becomes a, a, a almost confusing and misleading. What does God do for you as you wait? What does God do for you as you wait? Again, they make it about us. When you wait for the Lord, you should look forward to what he will do with joyful expectation and confident hope because he is providing his very best for you. Wait a minute. How can I wait with joyful expectation and confident hope? If I'm waiting for him to do that which he has not promised, then it's a waiting in vain kind of concept. I can wait for what he promised with confident hope. I can't wait for something that he hasn't promised. Just say, well, I believe God's going to do it. Based off what? Your own just desire? Well, then you'll find yourself maybe at a point of discouragement, disillusionment, and maybe defection because you're like, well, God didn't do what I thought he was going to do. God does what he promises to do, but it's got to be a specific promise in his word. God understands how difficult the delays are for you. How does this encourage you? What promise does God make to you if you commit yourself to waiting for him? What promise does God make to you if you commit yourself to waiting for him? And then this is, this is what they go on to say. During your season of waiting, you may feel somewhat lost, discouraged, and unmotivated. You may also feel as if God has forgotten you. He has not. God is always at work. And at this very moment, he is engineering your situation to provide his very best for you. In fact, he's lining up your circumstances in a way that is better than you could ever imagine. And you're going to be completely blessed when you see what he has done for you. Do you see how misleading this can be? Oh, I'm waiting for God to fix this situation. I, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for God to, to return my, my child who went missing. Oh, well, and oh, that didn't work out. Oh, I, I'm waiting for God to, to heal my cancer. Well, that, that didn't work out. Oh, I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for God to fix this, uh, play, uh, my problem that I'm having at my, oh, I just lost my job. Oh, I'm, wait, I'm waiting. I'm... You, waiting for something God has not promised and expecting God to do what he hasn't promised is not good, is not a good spiritual principle because you don't know how that, you can trust that God may intervene on your, you can ask, look, you can plead with God. You can beg God. You can petition. You can fast. You can pray. You can, you can do all of those things for anything that you need, crave, desire, what you can do that. But you can't say, I'm, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on God because God's going to do this. Based off, why, what are you basing that off of? Now, if you can open up the Bible and say, here is a specific promise. And it's a promise that is applicable. Remember in the Bible, there are three kinds of promises. All right, there are conditional, unconditional, and not applicable. There are some promises that are, Jeremiah 29, 11 is not applicable to you unless you're, you're living in Babylonian captivity. The, the, the passage here that, 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 uh, see, which one did they give here? Let me go back to it. Um, Isaiah 64, 4 is specifically about Judah waiting, about them waiting. Because, well, God is going to do, he's going to act on their behalf. He's going to deliver them. He's going to bring them back. So they go on to say, 
All right. Uh, so you're going to, you're, according to Charles Stanley, you're going to be, com- you're going to be completely blessed when you see what he's done for you. Hey, he's working right now. You just keep waiting. And then they says, however, you must be patient until his plan comes together and his perfect timing. Do not run ahead of God. The delays may be very challenging for you, but they are growing your faith in him. After all, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Therefore, look to him, strengthen yourself in his word and love and remain confident that he is working on your behalf. Of course, you may be wondering, what does God want me to do during this waiting time? And am I supposed to sit around and do nothing? Absolutely not. Waiting on God simply means that you continue in your present position until he gives you further instruction. As long as you're obeying him, you will continue on the correct course. <laughs> oh, man. I Look, I, I think we need... Oh, this, this, it drives, this drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. So here... I, do we have a principle here? Do we have an actual principle that can arrive from this, from this study? I don't know if we have a good principle here. They're saying that I can just, whatever I'm waiting for, if I'll just wait on God, that I almost count, I almost treat it as if God is, it's a guarantee that God has promised that he's going to act on your behalf and, and a way to bless you and whatever you're waiting for, almost like it's going to work out. It's a guarantee. And that, that is misleading and will lead many people to despair and depression and discouragement and maybe, you know, just completely deconstructing to use that, that, that popular phrase. I, I, I just think it's, it, God doesn't always do that. You can wait, you can beg and plead. If God has not made a specific promise that's applicable to you in his word, waiting for it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It doesn't mean he's going to act in, on your behalf in that particular situation. Mm, and they, they get a, they give a number of scriptures here that they have these life lessons to remember. And, and, and they, but all of these are just random. Like, like they have, I'll just give you quickly. Like when we wait, we discover God's will. Isaiah 30. When we wait, we receive supernatural physical energy and strength. So when you wait, you receive supernatural physical energy and strength, according to Charles Stanley. When you wait on God, you get supernatural physical energy and strength. Now, come on. How can you even make that claim? Hey, you're waiting on God on something? Dun, 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 dun. You get supernatural physical energy and strength. Sometimes the things Christians say, I'm almost embarrassed by. What do you, what do you mean you get supernatural physical energy and strength? What, what, what does supernatural strength look like? Man, I'm sure waiting for God to do so. Boom, I can lift up a car. Like, and they'll say, well, no, that's not, that's not what it's talking about. Well, what do you mean by supernatural strength and physical energy? And they, they get that supposedly from Psalm 27. When we wait, we win battles, Psalm 59, 9. When we wait, we see the fulfillment of our faith, Psalm 33, 20. When we wait, we see God working on our behalf. What do you mean? Supernatural physical energy and strength? Physical. That, 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 that's the word that uh, physical. It's not like, well, you get some kind of emotional strength or you get some kind of spiritual strength. No, you get physical, physical energy and strength. 
And all of these are just, like the first, you've got one taken from Isaiah and then other ones are just randomly pulled from, from the Psalms. And of course, no historical situation or it's given no, no, no textual context in any way, shape, or form. Now, what's frustrating here, and we're not going to have time to get into it, we really do need to develop, like, I, I, I 100% believe that, yeah, sometimes we have to wait on God. I mean, clearly, we're not to run ahead of him. I completely agree with that. But we are waiting. What we wait for is we wait for God to act according to his word. We wait for him to fulfill promises he has made. It's not that I just like, well, I need this. All right, God, I'm going to wait on you and you're going to do it. That that's the way this is being put forth. Wait and God's going to act on your behalf for whatever you're waiting for. And you can just basically choose what, what you're waiting on. But the problem is, no, that doesn't mean God's going to do what you think he's going to do. You wait on what he has promised. So you, I, I would challenge you, think of some things. This is what I would challenge you to do. Now, for most of these, I haven't given you any homework, but I, I just want to challenge you because I can't really give you a principle on this. Here's what I would challenge you to do. I want you to think of like four specific promises in Scripture that, you, that there's no debate. Clearly, they relate to you. I mean, clearly, they are applicable to you as a believer. Very clear promises that are right there in the Bible of what God is going to do, right? Clear promises. Now, how, do you, how does the concept of waiting apply to some of those promises? Now, those would be things you would wait for. Those are things you would wait for because it's a clear promise. You wait for that. But it, it's, it's this other stuff, I, I, it's just weird. I don't... I, I, I don't understand what they're trying to do here. It, it, it seems like it's very, to me, it's very misleading to people. It gives people a false sense of hope or a false idea that, okay, I'm, I'm really waiting on God to do this. Okay, well, if you wait on him, he's going to act on your behalf. He's working everything out. He's going to bless you. Everything's going to be great. And then when it doesn't work that way, then they're going to be like, wait, wait, you told me, well, yeah, because I lied to you because, well, no, you wait for what God has promised. So think of like three or four things that are clear in scripture. Here are clear promises and then say, okay, what does waiting for God on these specific things look like? That would be the correct application of this. All right. I, I, I want to write down a principle. I, I really do, but I, I can't, I can't do, I don't, I can't do anything with that. So we're going to have to stop because, well, I got to get ready to go to church. So I need to be leaving here in about 30 minutes. So, all right. And because the people in my church won't wait so patiently for me. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So thank you so much for listening. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. You know what makes these books so dangerous? Just a, a parting point is when you're a young preacher, you're a young preacher, preacher, and you see this, man, God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Ooh, that preaches so good. That preaches so, that preaches. And then you get here to the back of it, and a pastor looks at this. 
When we wait, we discover God's will. When we wait, we receive supernatural physical energy and strength. When we wait, we win battles. When we wait, we see the fulfillment of our faith. When we wait, we see God working on our behalf. Well, I mean, you've got all the points of your sermon. That preach is so good. And, and if I preached it that way and taught it that way, there'll be a lot of people today going, oh, that was so good. That was so encouraging. Amen. The only problem is I think I would be misleading you and maybe giving you an idea that's not biblical and you're going to end up very discouraged when it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to work. No, you wait for what God has promised you that's applicable to you, not be ripping promises out of context that are not for you. Well, and it's what? You can wait and you trust God to work those things out in his time and he will deliver because God will fulfill his promise. But if he didn't make a promise to you and you just like, I'm going to wait for God to do something, doesn't mean he's ever going to do what you think he's going to do. This seems to imply that he will just because you're waiting. If you wait, God will act. Hey, Judah, wait. God's going to act on your behalf. That was a guarantee because he promised that after 70 years, they would be delivered from their captivity. All right. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.